0: And welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel, and I'm alone again. Baruch, can I get some White Snake? Hello? Anyone? Okay. Last week, uh, Emiliano had an amazing interview with a couple of our past honorees, Gian uh, van Hieswijk. Apologies, Jan, I'm, I'm always messing up her name. And Lorenzo Romita of Stalker on the right to the city. Basically, how do we reclaim our authority over the city? And if you haven't listened to that episode, well, you should. You can find it and all our past episodes on our website at socialdesigninsights.com. But for now, I'm alone. Uh, Karen has returned to her day job of fixing everything that is unjust in New York City. So I'm here, all by my lonesome, sitting in my booth, keeping calm and carrying on. But I'm optimistic, because we're tackling something rather extraordinary. If you know anything about me, you know that my life has been preoccupied with disaster and resilience and architectural responses to such. And I kind of went through a crisis of faith last year after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, and I think my lowest moment was in finding out that 50% of Americans didn't actually realize Puerto Rico was in the United States. So we were turning our back on our own citizens because of ignorance and, quite frankly, because of racism, and it really provoked for me some thoughts that we've been going around this resilience question all wrong. We keep talking about it like it's a technical problem that we can design our way out of, and maybe we still can. But there are cultural problems there too. Ignorance, racism, nimbyism, colonialism, both new and otherwise. Lots of things collapse and coalesce into producing what we would ordinarily call a natural disaster. So this week, we're kicking off a new conversation about resilience and why it matters. We've assembled a group of the world's experts in resilience, but frankly, some of them would never identify as such. Basically, we got together some really big brains to talk about something really important. How do we design our buildings, cities, and culture in such a way that it protects our fellow humans? Climate change is here. It's advancing. As we'll hear during this segment, evacuations have already begun. Megacities are flourishing, concentrating risk with more people and smaller environments. Most disturbingly, we seem to continue to do more and more dumb stuff. We build more and more in marginal land. We ignore risk predictions and basically carry on as if it can never happen to us. For my first guest, I knew I had to speak with Xander Rose. Xander is a remarkable human being who was trained as an industrial designer and is now the lead engineer on the 10,000-year clock project for the Long Now Foundation. As you'll hear, this is about as simple and as complicated as it gets. He and his team are trying to build a clock that will run smoothly for the next 10,000 years. I had coffee with Xander earlier this year, and I knew that I had to get him on the show specifically for this segment, because we can't really begin to think about resilience until we start to think differently about the very concept of time. We need to design in a way that looks beyond the next fiscal quarter, beyond the next generation, and way, way into the future to make sure that there actually is a future. Or, as Xander will put it, you have to trust in the future a little bit. He says it a lot better than I do, so let's go on and get to the interview. Sander, thank you so much for joining us. Um it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, no pun intended, um perhaps for my entire career, and it means a lot to have you on the show to help us kick off this segment. Thank you for having me. Some of our audience members might be wondering why we start this big discussion of resilience, but to me, uh the work of the Long Now Foundation and the Ten Thousand Year Clock specifically uh really illustrate the key to solving some of the vulnerabilities that we're now facing in our, our, our built environment and our natural environment. We can't really begin to tackle climate change until we start thinking out one, two, seven generations. And I'm glad that you're here to, to give us your thoughts. Could you begin by telling us um, about the beginning, how you came to be involved uh, in this remarkable project?
1: Sure. Yeah. And the, the work of the Long Now Foundation really is about expanding people's timescales and what they consider to be, you know, a long-term project. When I first heard about this project, it was from Stuart Brand, who is one of the founders, uh whose background was with the whole Earth catalog and as a technology and architectural author. I had been working in the early parts of Silicon Valley in the 90s, or at least that that era of Silicon Valley, and realized that the projects I was doing um, really didn't have any staying power, that they would be released and uh, were kind of worthless a few weeks later, no matter how interesting they were when they were released. Uh, and I talked with Stuart about that, and he told me about this project, which at the time was just a conversation among the board, but that board was fairly extraordinary. It included people like Stuart himself, as well as Danny Hillis, a pioneer in Computing, uh, Brian Eno, the artist and composer, Kevin Kelly, the executive editor at Wired. This group had been talking about how to get the world thinking in a longer timescale. And Danny Hillis had proposed this idea of a millennial clock, uh, a clock that would tick once a year, bong once a century, and the cuckoo would come out once a millennium as a icon to long-term thinking that would reframe time for civilization and how we think of long-term projects. That's a great
0: introduction and I've spent the last couple of weeks digging into the the technical dimensions of the clock and it just it it seems like an extraordinary technical challenge to work on. It seems extremely fun as well just to to kind of think about how to create this extraordinary machine that can kind of run for such a long period of time. What what has been your, your greatest technical challenge so far?
1: You know, the early technical challenges were more about, you know, material choice. You know, we had to choose materials that were both resilient enough and would last long enough, but were also readily available in enough sizes and shapes and forms that that we could machine with them. So we couldn't, you know, make everything out of, you know, super exotic materials. We also wanted it to be a little bit more of a common material so that it wouldn't be overly valuable. And so things like the main structure of the clock are made with a, a marine grade of stainless steel, which is expensive in some terms, but in terms of the exoticness that you get into when people are designing nuclear waste repositories, it's it's nowhere near that. But I would say that by far the, the greatest challenge, and I don't know if you'd call this technical or not, but it certainly was the design challenge, was not in the materials or in just the, you know, the mechanical design so much as it is in the experience design and the aesthetics. You know, trying to understand, you know, what would be a compelling aesthetic to someone a thousand years from now is a really profound question. What would be an experience that changes the way people think about time and their place in it not only now but again uh, in a thousand years how do you design that experience those are the challenges that we spent the most time struggling with
0: let's flesh that out a bit you know in in viewing some of your lectures xander one of the things that you highlight is this idea of narrative i mean human narrative is is one of the things that actually uh, endures for 10,000 years i mean we have epic fables that go back that far and um, in some ways they're the most durable creations human have. Is that the intent is to kind of create a narrative about where we
1: are now as a civilization that can be read in the future? Really what this is, is is about attempting to build a new myth. And you you can't build a new myth by just telling everyone a story. You have to, uh, in effect, create an environment by which other people will create that myth and so you need to do something that is a mythic in scale and that's why the clock project is you know it's not a mantle clock it's uh, 500 feet tall but inverted down underground and in a mountain we want the experience itself to be mythic enough that people want to tell stories about it so it's a it's a tricky enterprise, and we don't know if we will succeed. We've we've already had some success in that. Neil Stevenson wrote a book, Anathem, that was based on a world that had ten thousand year clocks and the people that tended them. So that's that's kind of already started to happen. But when you get into the level that we're after, you know, maybe on par with the epic of Gilgamesh, which has lasted you know eight thousand plus years, that's that's what we're trying to get to.
0: Xander, I so admire that thinking, um, and I think it's what has been missing from a lot of our contemporary discussions about resilience. Um, you know, our the majority of our audience is is designers, and from the design community, and you know, how do we escape the trap of thinking only about the next few weeks, the first magazine shoot, um, the next fiscal quarter, that sort of thing, and really expand our own. Time thinking horizons. Um, what have been the the, the highlights and the lowlights? Do you have detractors?
1: I've actually been surprised at how readily accepted it has been. I think people are often, um, you know, they're feeling sped up by technology and media at this point, and they, when they hear about a project that is counteracting that to a certain extent, and you know, gives them the breathing room to think about problems that. We just aren't giving ourselves that breathing room. If somebody asked you to solve climate change in the next four years, you would just say you're crazy. But if you said, I would like you to solve climate change in the next 400 years, you could imagine how you might start doing that project. And by not giving ourselves that kind of time span to do these things, whether it's you know trying to solve hunger or the education system or the prison system or or environmental issues like climate change, by not giving ourselves a time frame that is reasonable to, to do these, we basically have just taken them off the table. By just giving people that time frame, it gives them permission to think in a different way, which I think is the important part. The other part that we try and get across is, you know, the long-term thinking is not just into the future; it's also into the past. And so, you know, obviously, you want to learn lessons from the past. It's not just the next ten thousand years; it's the last ten thousand years. And I think it's important to picture yourself in the middle of a twenty thousand-year story, at least, rather than at the end of a ten thousand-year story. And I think, you know, most science fiction these days is very kind of end-of-days and apocalyptic. Most talk about the environment is this way. But the reality is we are a tremendously resilient species. And I think what we're really talking about is what is our carrying capacity of Earth and what is our ability to live with each other? You know, the Earth is going to be just fine. And if we think about it in those terms, that we have 10,000 years in our future as much as 10,000 years in our past, I think it changes the way that we act you know that's another thing
0: that um i've always loved about this project is that it's so embedded with optimism we're living in uh, a present that is uh, packed with cynicism and it's easy to get down um on the you know fate of humanity but you look backwards and things are getting better like uh uncontroversially human life is better than it used to be we are a tremendously resilient species and we've figured out a way to come back from all sorts of awful things. And I have no doubt that in the long run, we'll figure out a way to deal with climate change as well. It's in the short term where people's optimism really breaks down. And what do you do? What, do, um, what does your team do in order to maintain optimism when you're working on a project that is supposed to last 10,000 years and has already been going for 20 years?
1: Fundamentally, the board of the Long Now and the people that work with us are optimists, and very much you know believe. As you do look at the history of human civilization, that it's undeniable that things have been getting better. And you know, for anyone who denies that, I would just you know challenge you to to live a hundred years ago, you know, with bad dentistry and you know the advent of of antibiotics just barely there. Most of us wouldn't even really have wouldn't survive that world. It's always curious to me as to how we think of the good old days as the good old days and are often thinking of the future as as a a denigrated version of our past when all evidence is to the contrary. And that does seem to go in cycles, like just in the 50s and 60s, the science fiction of that time was much more idyllic, obviously, and much more utopian. Um, And you can kind of watch it shift in the 70s and 80s to this much more dystopic version, uh, you know, as Blade Runner and, and these other versions of our future came around.
0: That's the second time you've mentioned science fiction. Is that a good,
1: uh, measure or harbinger or representation of our attitudes towards the future? It's one of the only ones I know that we can use and it's where we are collectively imagining our future and you know, many things that were invented in science fiction become a reality because they've been kind of manifested enough in that global consciousness it's hard to say how much of it is predictive so much as how much of it is reflective but I do think that you know now that technology especially communications technology has gotten so advanced so fast that it seems that most science fiction is is really just trying to figure out the present. Uh, And I think that's always kind of the truth about science fiction, but it's especially true now, um, where it's very difficult to project out into 10, 15 years into the future. It's almost easier to to project out a thousand years because then you can just, you know, you can wipe the slate clean. But how you would imagine a world um, just 10 to 15 years if a lot of what you're talking about is technology and science fiction is quite difficult these days. And you know, for you know, you might reference Facebook all through your whole Science fiction book, and then have it not be there. You know, it could be the MySpace. You know, 15 years from now, and so it's a it's it's a difficult time, I think, to do near term science fiction. But I'm not sure where that dystopian part comes from. I, I think it it may well be actually, um, you know, in some part a fault of the environmental movement, which you know, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of. But I think that the way that they have you know, Spent a lot of time raising money and um, sending their message out has been very apocalyptic, and it's it's embedding itself into the culture.
0: You are listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts on reframing time spans from Zander Rose of the Long Now Foundation. But we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about the future of the 10,000 Year Clock and the very mechanics and experience of this remarkable project. You don't want to miss it. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more social design insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Xander Rose about the uncanny truth of science fiction. Coming up, we're going to go inside the remarkable clock machine. and Xander is going to tell us how it works. Let's rejoin the conversation. It seems like even projects that you know are looking at uh, long time horizons often under-anticipate the, the speed of change. And I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm going to mangle it here, but the uh, Svalbard Seed Vault which was you know, designed to be long-term storage for all of the Earth's seed heritage and you know, within its first few years uh, was already flooding. Is that a consideration for you? Is that the sort of thing where you and your team are, are working on those sorts of issues or is it at the 10,000 year horizon, you're sort of insulated from those sorts of considerations?
1: Well, it's interesting you mentioned Svalbard. I, I was there a few years ago and it was a few years before this report that came out that Climate change has caused it to flood, and and actually they had to install a pumping system um, within a year or two of it opening, and it was, it was not because of climate change. It was because of their underground design, which was very instructive for us, actually. And and the other facility that also was like this was um, the Mormon Genealogical Vault, which I also was lucky enough to tour. And in both cases, they tried to stop water from entering. And in both cases, you know, the water always finds a way. One of the things we learned out of this process, if we're going to build underground, is that you know, you get the choice of where you want to route water, but you don't get a choice of whether or not you have water, and it was very valuable. But yeah, that um, strangely, um, that the the seed vault has a downward sloping entrance, I guess, in order to get deeper faster under the mountain. But had they made that entrance just fifty feet longer or so and sloped it downward and outward, it would naturally be draining. The thing that happened there was was not threatening the seeds themselves. It would have to flood. Much more extensively than than it was, uh, and all they really have to do is drill a, a drain downward sloping, which I, I believe is what they have now done but it's uh, it's a good it's a good reminder, uh, especially when trying to build long term facilities, that y- your choices around water are, are really going to be where it goes, not if it goes. A good lesson, and not only for
0: millennial seed vaults but for our <laughs> ordinary buildings and cities indeed.
1: How do you get into all these places? Um, well, I've been doing this project for quite a while. I'm on you know, 21 years or so working on this project. And they took many years of trying to figure it out. And then, to a certain extent, also being recognized as somebody else in the field that cares about long-term thinking and design. But I think you know I probably asked in different ways to get into the genealogical vault for about nine years before finding the right people in the right circumstance to do it. And the Svalbard trip was about three years in the making, working with Center for Landloose Interpretation. Steve Rowell had to put together a multi-country art project for which uh, we were just a small part but uh, allowed me to uh, go on one of the trips.
0: I think that's another important lesson to draw out of all of this is the uh, value of persistence.
1: Indeed, yeah. Um yeah, when when you are working on a project that, that that is this long, you you have the time to kind of uh, to figure that out, and um, and eventually, most things are accessible over those kind of time spans.
0: Let's draw that out a little bit. You know, coming from the world that I do, the world of design, um, designers are frequently taught to think about buildings in in you know a scale of thirty years, right? And a thirty year useful life, and and certain monumental buildings are different. We expect them to last longer than that many buildings never make it to 30 years. There's enough development pressure, uh, that the buildings are taken down and we're going to put up something else, something bigger, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in our cities, our cities are handicapped by, uh, election cycles. So some piece of infrastructure that may pay dividends for, you know, 50, 75 years, no particular politician can ever draw benefit out of that. Uh, So there's seemingly no incentive to think beyond the next election cycle, and we eventually don't end up making those investments because there's nothing to be gained in the short term from that long-term investment, at least from a political standpoint. And it seems like in you know earlier civilizations, uh, including up through the twentieth century, that was okay. I mean, it was okay to make an investment that was not going to pay immediate. dividends. And we didn't seemingly have this obsession with immediate gratification. We were willing to do things, to spend money, to make investments that, you know, we knew might benefit our children and our grandchildren and, and their children. What lessons do you think the, the Long Now Foundation and the clock can provide about how to upend all this, how to dislodge us from our current thinking traps and help us understand uh,
1: how to do it differently? This is actually a good example of something that we did do better in the past, and we have been getting worse at. And it's hard to say if that's just because the examples that have actually lasted from the past are the ones that we still have with us, so we appreciate them. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of bad short-term decisions that caused some infrastructure to crumble early on, um, but we don't really have those examples so much you know, We look at some of the choices that were made around the water systems of New York or California 100, 150 years ago, which were, I, I think they can be criticized in a lot of ways, but they were actually extremely long-term thinking and were century, if not multi-century decisions that were made for those areas. And they're the the fundamental reasons that those areas were able to thrive and exist. We don't see those kind of decisions getting made now. It's very, very rare. And our ability to build that infrastructure has been going away as we have stopped doing large infrastructure projects. We just don't have the expertise. You know, things like the new Bay Bridge in, in the Bay Area here you know, took way, way too long, way too over budget to be a bridge like that was ridiculous that it it should take that long and so we are getting worse at some things that does definitely concern me i think you know one of the the stories that got long now started was a story that gregory bateson told Stuart brand which was about the oak beams at new college oxford where the college was built in the 1200s it was built with these giant oak beams over the the main dining hall about 500 years later in the 1800s The beams had become infested with beetles and were rotted, and they had to replace them. But they couldn't find those kind of trees anymore in Europe, commercially available. And it wasn't until they spoke to the school forester who said, oh, we have the trees that you planted. And it turns out that the school had been maintaining forest grounds for the last 500 years to replace things just like this. So this is something as simple as putting some acorns in the ground. But it's not just that simple. It's also having that forester and that collective intelligence that has lasted for all those generations in order to remind you that you had it. There's other stories like this where the Norwegian Navy, for instance, planted groves of pine trees in order to be harvested for mass. And the the forestry department in Norway called the Navy department to tell them that their mass were ready 200 years later. And that's a, a different example where the thing that was planted is now no longer needed. And so how do you weigh these types of of infrastructure investments, both uh, required this kind of constant tending over time, but still are are not that difficult in the in terms of you know something like maintaining a sewer system or a water system for a major part of a continent. But I think both are illustrative of ways that you can make small investments at the beginning that are really helpful over time, and you get to leverage that longevity. But I, I think for the most part, the biggest problem around infrastructure investment is just simple education. And we've we've, we've decided in the United States really to treat infrastructure as this thing that's got a gray wall and a cyclone fence around it, and no one should ever look there. And I think that's the biggest mistake is inviting people into the infrastructure, I think, is the real answer.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And uh, yet another thing that I really love about this clock is it's transparency. It's really designed in such a way that, you know, someone could not go for 5,000 years and then upon visual inspection, uh, figure out how it works. I think part of the problem with our current attitudes towards infrastructure um, and towards cities and buildings is that we don't understand how any of this works, how any of these systems work. You know, we don't necessarily know where the water in our faucet comes from and we don't care as long as it's clean, and we don't care where our poop goes after we flush the toilet, as long as it's not hanging around. We just utilize these systems, you know, without a thought or care in the world until they stop working, and then we write an angry Facebook post about it. I mean, is that is that part of the point of the clock uh, and the mission is to, I guess, be transparent, to sort of highlight the workings
1: of the clock and, and thereby get people to care about it? That's right. I mean, we designed the clock and the clock visiting experience very much to invite people into the infrastructure. So you you kind of come in the outdoor of the clock as the intended way to visit it. And you start by seeing the parts that don't move and that are might even, maybe even some cast off parts that, that didn't get used in the clock. It may be confusing at first, and then you come across something to wind, but you don't even know really why you're winding. And then you slowly get to faster moving parts of the clock and things that make more sense. But we're, we're trying to invite people in through their curiosity to tend the machine and for it to honor the time that is spent between visits as much as when it's visited. So for instance, the clock doesn't show you the correct time when you arrive there. And by time, I mean, where the planets and sun and stars are uh, which is the main way it shows time it shows you the time of the last visitor and that if that was yesterday you wind it for a very short amount of time if that was a thousand years ago you might be there for a couple of days updating it and feeding the energy into it and the clock harvests enough power from the temperature difference from day to night to keep understanding of where now is so its a pendulum and its and its escapement are going all the time but that's just a very small amount of motion all the things that kind of show you the time like the dials and the the chimes that you hear are all uh, powered by the visitors that that come and see it
0: that's an amazing vision and for our listeners we're going to link to All sorts of videos and and instructions so you can see how this uh, remarkable machine actually works. And for anybody that lives in or is visiting the Bay Area, um, you can visit the Long Now Cafe, the Interval Cafe in Fort Mason, where there's a scale model of the clock. Isn't there, Xander?
1: I would not call it a scale model so much as these are prototypes for certain parts of the clock. So we have one of the prototypes of the chime mechanism that can ring a series of 10 bells in a different sequence each day for 10,000 years. So over three and a half million combinations of of the bell ringing. That's an algorithm that was worked on by Danny Hillis, and Brian Eno. There's also one of the displays of the clock that is an orrery or a a planetary display, which shows the human eye visible planets mechanically represented. So there's, there's these things that are parts of it. And there's also parts of the clock site here as well that the bar counter is made from the pieces that were cut out between all the steps that we cut into the rock for people to visit the clock. That's amazing.
0: And um, I really do uh, urge anyone listening the next time you're in the Bay Area to check it out. I had one remaining question and I'm kind of tortured by it. Um, I think it's, about, it's surrounding you know time and trauma. One of the things about this clock that really struck me is that it's indifferent to us. And certainly, you know, we can participate in its winding, but um, it will continue to keep time. And it's always kind of been the basis of uh, humankind's struggle with time, right? That it's kind of indifferent to us. It keeps going, whether we want it to or not. That says powerful things, but can also be somewhat dispiriting at times, especially in times of trauma and desperation. And now I know why I didn't ask this, because I'm having trouble formulating this uh, into a question. I saw the clock, and uh, I was remembering my Faulkner, you know, reductio ad absurdum. There's something intrinsically depressing about a clock that works. It just goes on and on. I think my hope is that understanding our relationship to that millennial clock does not get us depressed, but actually inspires us to be better
1: citizens and better ancestors one thing i've learned along the way in this project is that the you know, asian cultures for instance are uh, find clocks to be basically a, a representation of death in many cases and so the clock is not an exciting object to <laughs> to some of them whereas we see it as a kind of hopeful object to me it's a it's an object of of great potential and you know, as i mentioned one of the hardest things for us to do was to understand how to design the aesthetic of it. And one of the main principles that we operated under for that is, you know, had we burrowed into the mountain and found the clock already ticking there, what do we wish we had found? And if you kind of ask yourself that every time when you're up against a design problem, you know, you fundamentally realize that you would like to think that the past cared about as much about you as we are trying to put into that clock. So that's our main goal.
0: Well, thank you so much, Xander. We really appreciate that thought and and all your contributions here and and your time, uh, no pun intended. I think it was a great way to start off the segment and get us to start thinking differently about our cities and our buildings and our ecological environments uh, in a way that makes us better ancestors. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Xander Rose of the Long Now Foundation for his thoughts on time and how to think about it differently. Next week, we'll be moving down south to where the water meets the land and not in a good way. We'll be talking with Matt Sanders of the Louisiana state government about a project that he's been working on that has come to be known unofficially as the resettlement of America's first climate change refugees. Yield Jean Charles, Louisiana is going under the sea. In 1955, it was 22,000 acres. Only 320 acres remain today. Matt and his team have engaged in a complex social, political and technical task of moving the remaining residents inland. Matt has some amazing perspectives on how advancing climate change presents a sort of optimistic opportunity and how refugees as a term might be reframed as pioneers in our own human adaptation to a changing planet. To learn more about Xander Rose, The Clock, and the Long Now Foundation, please visit our website at socialdesigninsights.com. There you'll also find some further links about this and other projects and some added material to assist in your research. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can always write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Seichner. And at the break, we were listening to Time by Pink Floyd, one of my favorites. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter just look for Curry Stone FDN for all the latest news on social impact design.